Welcome to the Two Top Podcast, the weekly podcast where we go over different topics in the world. I'm your host, Thomas Lance, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Berg. How's it going? You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Make sure to follow us on Twitter to stay updated on the latest episodes. Now let's dive right into this week's episode of Two Top. All right. Welcome back to the Two Top Podcast. We are here, season two, episode one, and Matt's not here, but we have a special guest. Hey guys, I'm here. I've been on an episode before, so I'm back for another one. Yeah, he's here. Uh, you So he hasn't listened to the last episode. We talked about you for like a solid couple really? minutes. Yeah, because we were like, Touch. oh, here's like definitely like the third member of Two Top because he's always coming in clutch. I'm the recurring guest host that like critiques you guys occasionally. Yeah, you come in and like show us, show us up. Mostly me. But well, to start things off, I want to talk about a weird topic. So last night I'm sitting in my bed. And have you ever watched the show Community? I've, I think I've watched an episode or two, but I've heard about it. Yeah. Well, there's this episode that Donald Glover's character he goes into. He's at this like air conditioning repair company, and he goes into this room that has the perfect room temperature. And it's this whole gag. He's like, I feel like there's no barrier between the air and my skin, and I feel one with the room around me. And I was laying in bed and I was watching this and I was like. What is room temperature? Like, what is the per? Is there such thing as a perfect room temperature? Because you'd think, well, room temperature in Canada is probably not the same room temperature in Ecuador. Shout yeah, out to true. Matt in Ecuador. Um, so I was like, is there a universal definition for the temperature of room temperature? Because, like, some things, some recipes are like, leave out at room temperature, drink this wine at room temperature. Uh, don't leave out in room temperature, room temperature, room temperature, room temperature. So I started to do some digging. It's like, all right, let's find the answer to this. No, this question that no one's asking except me. So room temperature is actually, there is a measurement. It's between 55 and 77 degrees. And this is because that's the range of human comfort, which once I read that sentence, I realized, oh shoot, I spent a whole week learning about this in architecture class. And I was like, oh, I can do a topic on this. So the human comfort is this is this narrow range of when it comes to temperature, it's 55 degrees to 77 degrees. So in that range, but also it deals with humidity. So based on how much water is in the air also affects the comfort level. Now, does that depend on like how you sense it or how you like touch things? Because I know for me, I say room temperatures between something that's like we do something that's cold and something that's warm. Anything in there is like room temperature. Well, yeah. So it's also that. And also wearing clothes changes that comfort level. Right. Because if you're wearing less, you want something warmer. But if it's, you can stand 55 degrees in a house if you're wearing like a sweater and warmer clothes. So that still means room temperature is objective. There's no perfect answer for room temperature. It's still all up to you. But there's a lot of things that factor. So if you're building a building, you want, I mean, as the show and community, you want, they strive for that perfect room temperature feel. And sometimes you're going to need to get air conditioning to raise that just a little up to reach it or have heat to like make it all settle within this zone. I personally think room temperature is fantastic. I mean, is room temperature defined by like a certain, like, 
I know on the show, I haven't watched that episode, but on the show he says he finds, like, the perfect room temperature. So is it that he finds, like, are they, like, heating and cooling the room to the perfect temperature, or is it just naturally that temperature? They're, like, heating and cooling the room, okay. because he's, like, at an air, air conditioning company, like, he oh, passes true, a yeah. test, and it's, like, this is the room temperature room. Like, this is the room that room temperature is based off of. <laughs> it's a funny bit. It, that's definitely a show I want to watch, because it's, it seems hilarious, and I also, I love Donald Glover. He's hilarious. Such a talented actor. Yeah. So, I think the whole deal is, room temperature makes you feel good. So it's whatever temperature makes you feel good. And room temperature should be something that you don't feel in a sense. You shouldn't be sitting in this room and be like, wow, what a room temperature place. It's more like you feel it when it's not correct, when you start to feel uncomfortable, hence the comfort range. Yeah, I'm sitting in this room thinking like, this room is pretty good. This is pretty good. Now, if it was warmer, you'd notice like, when this room is hot, I want to take Mm -hmm. off a layer. Or normally this room is freezing for some reason because I'd get no heat in this room. So I'll come in here and I'll be like, this is cold. I am cold. It is not comfortable. So for you, does room temperature differ from you to me? Because you always wear a sweatshirt. Yeah. No matter what the temperature is, you're always in a sweatshirt. Yeah. So that's also what I wanted to think. I thoroughly believe room temperature is up to one's discretion. Because, I mean, like I I have a friend of mine who's from Saudi Arabia who is studying here. And his, like... When he was here in fall and it was getting cold, he's like, it's freezing outside. I'm just wearing a hoodie. It's like, it's fine. Or like, it's the hottest day of summer. And he's like, oh, this is comfortable. And it's like, I'm burning up. It's like, this is way too hot. So I have different comforts than someone who lives in a more desert. I don't I don't think desert's the right word for just it. Just a hotter climate. Hotter climate, yeah. So do you prefer like the more cold and you're up in Penn state. That's yeah. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like colder on average. Like it's about uh, maybe a couple degrees colder, but in general, I prefer to be like cold because I don't, I don't wear like as many layers usually. So I prefer to be on the colder side. So I'm probably on the lower end of that room temperature spectrum. Well, that's also, do you prefer cold weather or hot weather? I prefer cold weather because you can always just wear a bunch of stuff to be warm Hot weather, you can only take off so much to yeah. cool off. But yeah, no matter what, you can like find your comfort zone in cold weather, whether you know by being inside or by wearing more layers. But you can't like do that in hot weather; you're just stuck there. And then you'll go to a place that has no air conditioning because also another thing that factors into this comfort range. It's like this crazy chart that I'll put on our website. So you have humidity on the bottom and like temperature on the side but then also you have like this diagonal going on about airflow because mm-hmm. even if it's a normal temperature like think of wind chill it might be 40 degrees outside but then with wind it will drop down it will feel like it's 30 right. degrees so i was going to ask you next does airflow humidity like even like sunlight does that affect what room temperature is yeah, it plays into part because when you're dri- like one thing I noticed when you're driving down the road and you have the sun on one side, of, you feel that half of your face is warmer. Mm-hmm. And this also applies to having a breeze going on. You might be really warm, but just like a light, cool breeze going over your skin is enough to cool your body down a couple degrees. So designers of buildings, they have to balance all these factors. It's like, all right, 
the sunlight will be a natural heat, but also we have to be able to shade the buildings as well. So what a lot of buildings do now is to aid with reaching this room temperature, they focus having blinds that automatically go down based on temperature and sunlight coming through. So you heat the building with the sun, but also you cool it with shade. So you have to balance all these things just to reach human comfort. So we're needy people. We really are. Cats, cats don't care. Dogs don't care. You'll see a dog run in the snow. I mean, they maybe they do. I don't know. Do you ever throw your cats out in the snow? <laughs> of course, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> no, cats, cats don't care. Cats are, I mean, they find the warmest spot, which is the sun, the window, <laughs> the heater, and they'll sit there all day. <laughs> and then humans will just complain. We complain a lot. On the topic of complaining. So one of the biggest problems I have with Penn State is that the classroom buildings are so unbearably warm. It's such a pain when you're like walking around the cold, you walk into the classroom and it's like 50 degrees hotter. Well, because then you have to, you go to class wearing warm clothes and then you get in and then you take off all your warm clothes. And then when you leave, you have to put them all back on. Such a pain. Like these classrooms are built for like summer room temperatures, but you're wearing winter clothes. Something just does not line up. Yeah. Uh, Penn State's just not that good. That's all I got. Is it something like that too, where like the classroom buildings are really warm compared to outside? It's funny. The older buildings on campus definitely are colder than they need to be. Mm. Poor insulation, probably. Yeah, probably. They're just concrete slabs, tall towers sitting off. Some classrooms don't have windows too, which it also leads to a very cold space. Yeah, but no sunlight. It's expensive to heat these buildings. And a lot of them are still heated with uh, radiant heat from radiators. Mm-hmm. And that's also a whole nother beast because then you have to deal with the convection of hot air and hot water mixing to then heat up a space. But you can only heat up a space from one part and there's no if there's no airflow, you have an uneven heated room and then you don't reach room temperature. Yeah, I wondered, how, how do they do that in like big open areas, like say like an open plan office? How do they keep the room temperature stable? Because say you have windows on one side, that side's going to be way warmer than the other side. Well, the problem is the open office came into realization once HVAC became more popular. Back in the day, everything was like, well, to cool to cool or heat a place, back in revolutionary times, if you had a large building, it may be like a large square plan, but the middle was normally hollow because every room had to have access to windows on either side for that crosswind airflow. But the minute people were like, hey, we can just do air conditioning. We can do whatever we want. We can have a space with zero windows, but still stay warm. That's when you start getting like the designs of you just have windows on one side and just blast the room with AC. And it's more expensive, but I mean, it's a solution. Mm-hmm. But it's a funny thing to think about. And I'm glad my late night binging of YouTube has brought me to this topic. It was a pretty interesting one. So what do you have then? All right. The so, guest of honor. Guest of honor. Sit back, fire up Steam, because we're talking about video games today. Okay, cool. Because I was going to talk about video games, but I was like, hmm, let's do something else. <laughs> yeah, that's why I was a little nervous about not having listened to the last episode. Like, crap. It, it's a pretty popular topic, so like, what if you guys talk about it already? But I think I'm safe. I'm specifically talking about how these games are made. Oh, okay. The computer the computer right. program boy comes in and he wants to talk about programming. Okay, okay, what do you have? Alright. So there are if you think about it, I've done a fair bit of programming, but 
games like, say, Skyrim, PUBG, they're all so complicated when you think about it. So how is it that, like, these super complicated games are made? Because if you think about it from a programming perspective, you would have to have so much code in it to accomplish anything you'd want to. So let's start with the very basics, you know. Similar to, like, a film studio or something, a game studio starts by using storyboards to map out how the game will progress. You know, creating the storyline or, like, the... um, The storyline, the scenery, the setting concept for the game say like rocket league it's like rock like car soccer versus like a shooter game which is completely different or skyrim which is medieval right. like magic going on mm-hmm. so you got to start by you know detailing that and seeing like what your basic game mechanics are going to be so that's in the storyboarding step next step is creating the characters so you're a designer or you dabble in design at least i dabble in design that is definitely true so the way that they do this is they start by, you know, taking these rough storyboards and, you know, creating sketches based off them and then turning these sketches into 3D models, often with the use of 3D printers. And once they have these models, what they do is they like project a digital exoskeleton onto these models. So like think of all the different joints in a human body. And in order to properly animate that, you have to be able to like control each separate joint. So these digital exoskeletons start by, you know, sort of like placing a point on your shoulder, your elbows, your knees, stuff that moves so that you can like accurately move that and create the model of that. And then once you have that model, you can then start to animate your characters with the various ways you can move forward with it. So like, you know, walking, running, fighting, they're all different motions. But once you have like the main range of motions down, you can just reuse that over and over. Like, say you're playing Skyrim, if you're swinging an axe or you're swinging a sword, sure, like, the general motion is going to be different, but overall, it's just you move your arm. Every time it happens, they can just reuse the same assets over and over. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was saying earlier, like, millions of lines of code. That's how they start to cut that down by reusing certain motions, certain assets. So instead of having, like, a sword projected in your hand, you can have an axe projected in your hand. And I I know something funny with that. It's like, I remember hearing about a guy who was a game designer and it's like, oh, so cool. You design games. And he's like, well, what I do is I sit down and I draw the same walk cycle of someone taking a step over and over and over again all day. So it's, a, it's tedious, but it ends up like it's similar with CGI. The less you notice the process, the better the game is. Right. That's what I was going to talk about next. Like, creating the world and game like Skyrim where there's so many different opportunities, like different landscapes, different climate sort of thing. You can have millions of different textures and the best work often has to go unnoticed because of like the uncanny Valley where the, the closer it is to reality, the less you notice it, but the, but when it's close, but not good enough, you notice it more. And that's where it really stands out. And sometimes with that's why sometimes movies are at 30 frames instead of 60 frames. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if many people had the opportunity, but I saw the Hobbit movies in the 60 frame per second viewing. And you can see every detail of a fake model. Yeah, didn't you hate that one? Yes. Like, I yeah. Well, because you can see real people and then fake orcs. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's like, that's real. That's not real. And it's because of that extra, that one extra frame in there is enough for your mind to go, hey, I have just that extra second to see that's not real. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so this is one of the hardest parts is like making sure that all the assets, all the environments are all accurate, sort of to speak. Well, sometimes also I can imagine you don't want things too realistic because I mean, if you're playing a call like an, an a warfare shooter, you don't want it to look perfect because in a sense then it's too real. Yeah. That's why you have games like Fortnite Battle uh oh my goodness, what's it called? Battle 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 uh Borderlands. Borderlands <laughs> Borderlands and uh, all these games, shooter games, Ratchet and Clank, that like you are fighting aliens, but it's so it's such an art style mm-hmm. that it's not real. Yeah, that's another thing I guess that when it goes into designing, they have to think of what style you'll do the whole mm-hmm. game in. Yeah, like a game like Halo will be completely different from like Ratchet and Clank. Right, and even just like animating these various movements, so like you're getting shot and you have to basically design someone getting shot and their reaction to that and oftentimes you have to well i don't think they actually shoot people we have to try to you know <laughs> motion capture, yeah. recreate that with like an actual human person to figure out how exactly they like flop to the ground well when it comes to style too it's like picking a font out it's mm-hmm. like what font will i write this paper and it's what style will i design this whole game in right and then recently motion capture has actually been really really uh influential to games right mm-hmm. with yeah. um it's almost turning game because you have movies like planet of the apes which is motion captured apes you see all the emotions but then you have ga- crazy games like uh last of us is the one i think that's of. literally what i just looked up right now yeah last of us and games like that that they do motion capture so you can get these really realistic facial animations because in a sense games are playable movies but Video games do not make good movies. <laughs> no, we've learned that from like recent ones. But yeah, what I was saying, what you're saying is very true. With like, I think it was Ellen Page in The Last of Us, where like the character is modeled very similar to her. Yeah, it wasn't a, <laughs> it wasn't supposed. They did it without her, but didn't mm-hmm. mention her. Gotcha. That was that was a whole thing because if you look side by side, this character in Last of Us, Ellie looks just like ellen page yeah so i didn't know if they like actually modeled her movements for that or if they just sort of recreated her (laughs) they they recreated her and there was this big lawsuit that came out of it but i mean people gain inspiration from other people right Mm -hmm. you have to model off something yeah and if you're seeing these people like hollywood actors and actresses in movies every day you're bound to be influenced by them well the guy who plays Jon snow uh kit harrington kit harrington was in a call of duty game and it's like hey that's that's interesting it's like they got your voice yeah i think and facial yeah. re- kevin spacey, kevin was, spacey in, was in one too is yeah. in another one i played that one too and it's like wow that's really accurate <laughs> like there's kevin spacey telling me what to do in this game i mean yeah. nowadays that's probably probably not a good idea, i'd probably yeah. dis- disassociate with that guy mm-hmm. so We've talked about all that basic stuff, but what really intrigued me was like the being CompSci major, the code that goes into these games. Because you've done a, a little bit of programming in high school. And so, do you remember what an if else statement is? Yeah, it's like a loop. Yeah, so basically, you check if a certain event has occurred. If it has, you do some one task. If it hasn't, you do another task. Like if the key is in the car, the car can start. Right, exactly. So you have like, you know basic conditional statements and most programming you relies very heavily on this 
to like accomplish something like if this key is pressed launch this program or do this right. task if the bottom row in tetris is filled delete the bottom exactly. row. exactly yeah so that's what i'm coming to next like my question was is video game logic very heavily dependent on these if else statements like do they use millions upon millions of them to create like every possible outcome see we have to talk to our good old friend uh zach phillips that's true yeah zach he is... he's the video game programmer that we know mm-hmm. and uh, that would be interesting we have Let's get a podcaster, a computer science major, and a video game programmer, and we'll all discuss. The two-top panel. More like uh, everybody who deals with Apple's uh, ecosystem, you you deal with... Uh, Don't get me started on it. I've just had a rough night yesterday <laughs> trying to get an app working. Yeah. Oh, Apple. Never change. Actually, please change. Please, please be more useful. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's part of the reason. Like, I was working with an app and thinking, like, all right, maybe I want to build a game next. What kind of logic goes into creating that? So... As I was saying, like, a game like Pong, you can probably deal with pretty easy. Like, if the ball hits the paddle, bounce off at a certain angle, depending on, you know, the angle that it comes in at. But say Skyrim, like, if you, like, accept this one quest, how does that branch off? So, yeah, like, from what I got, I can think of text adventure games. Like, if you type in this, if someone types in this, give this response. Mm-hmm. But I can only... Once you st- once you start adding like graphics and actions and controls, that's when you lose me. I was like, how on earth? Yeah, that's what I was coming to, to first. That's what I was like looking at first. And like, I still I've been looking at it all day yesterday, and I still don't really understand exactly how it works. But I have a general idea. And what you said about the text adventure, I remember looking at Zach Phillips's text adventure game a couple years ago, and like looking through the code and seeing how he did everything. There's, there was a lot of code there. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go Zach. I want I I wonder what he's up to. I should probably yeah. maybe I'll send him a message saying, "Hey, I mentioned you in our <laughs> podcast." But like, if you think about that, say you're fighting a battle, even a text adventure game or a real game, most of the battle mechanics would stay the same. Right. So like, you hit someone based on your weapon, your personal skill with that weapon, your personal skill in fighting, they lose some you know, percent of their health. And so stuff like that is basically how they, you know, make everything a little smaller. So you don't have to say, like, if character A hits character B with a sword, do this. If character A hits character B with a knife, do this. A lot of it stuff is, like, reused. So they have what are called libraries or, you know, like, objects where basically every time they have a battle scene, they reuse that stuff again and again. So that's really what cuts down on, you know, the different like if else statements you have to use throughout. Right. Uh, I mean, all that is amazing. And when you think of it's it's all math in a sense, mm-hmm. playing these games like any shooter, it's all equations. It's like, well, if you fire, I mean, it may just look like a game, but in a sense, it's the math of, well, if you fire a projectile this speed with this gravity, what's the drop off mm-hmm. of like I know in Fortnite, the snipers have a drop to them as well, and right. like that's just a math equation. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a uh, projectile, projectile motion. motion. Yeah, that no. brings me to my next point. Like, how do they? What about stuff like a bullet flying or like an axe swinging? And a lot of that is based on physics, and a lot of that physics is handled by the game engine which the programmers are working with. 
stuff like Unity, if you've heard of that before. Yeah, Unity, Fro- uh, Frostbite's an engine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Unreal Engine, stuff like that. A lot of that, what they do is they handle like the physics of the game. So like you say in Rocket League, you hit the ball. How is that ball going to fly? So you basically give the game engine, say, the speed coming into the hit and the angle of the hit, and the game engine would then handle, you know, how does that ball arc through the air? So that also abstracts away some of the work that programmers have to do in that it's hidden in, like, the physics engines of different game engines. Right. So that also takes away a lot of, like, the if-else statements. So tying it back all together now, like, a like say, Zach's text adventure game, it was a ton of if-else statements. But a real game like Skyrim, like Rocket League, like Fortnite, it doesn't necessarily need to use all of those. It basically, you know, has stuff that it reuses like a battle scene or like a bullet flying or like, you know, changing to like a different scope or something. It can reuse that stuff over and over again. Looking back to older games for like the first systems, I think it's the best way to like understand it. Like nowadays games are so complicated, but looking Mm -hmm. back, at like the first Pokemon game, the first Legend of Zelda game, those guys, that's a very linear system. It's right. Well, if you hit if you hit the right button, you will move a set amount of pixels mm-hmm. in this direction, or you'll have data values for creatures. Like this creature will have this amount of health, this, 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 mm-hmm. and it's all the storage and it felt nested. Right. If you think about say Pokemon, like early versions of it say like Pokemon Red or Yellow, you had very basic commands and basic moves and everything was a linear process. So that's somewhere where you don't need this sort of like libraries for like like a physics engine or something like that. You would, you basically, well, even in there, you have like a battle, say, and you have like the same options pop up again and again. And like, say you carry out the same move, no matter what your character is or like what your Pokemon is, it's going to be animated the same way, sort of. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff is basically figuring out areas where you can reuse things and then, you know, effectively reusing that to lessen your workload. I think it's a, I love video games. I recently have been trying to get back into it. My first year of college, I kind of stepped back. I mean, I played my Rocket League, but now I'm recently, I've been playing a lot of Switch games and then I've also been playing some other games I really want to play. And it's making me look at all these things again. It's like, man, there's so much that's in that goes into these. Mm-hmm. And it's very impressive what they're able to do with the tech. Even back then, looking at old games, like what they were able to pull off with such a low technology. Like in the original Mario Brothers, you realize that the the clouds and the bushes are the same object, just colored differently in order to, yeah. in order to save graphical space. And a lot of these things are reused assets in order to save the data. So, like, everything is thought out. It's all about making the most efficient code possible, mm-hmm. which I think you understand that too, right? Yeah, so that's sort of where I came from. Like, how do they build these giant games? Like, a game like, say, Destiny could give you hours upon hours upon hours of gameplay. And how do they keep, like, generating new stuff for you to do? without like ever falling into like the same loop over and over again. I mean, I think Destiny's a terrible example for that. Okay. I I'm thinking I haven't actually played Destiny, but just I'm thinking more like any game that has random dungeons like more indie titles mm-hmm. like 
enter the gungeon uh, binding of isaac that each time you play the game it's a different experience yeah minecraft as well that's mm-hmm. a great example of each time you load a game it creates a completely randomized thing and that's just a line of code it's all right start of the game if it is in this area then it will have this type of landscape this area will have this type and it's all just here's code execute all the code and then the v- game can play if you think about minecraft's a very straightforward game yeah and so coming into this like having done programming before it really opened my eyes like it's not as much as like you would initially think but it's still a lot of work to get everything running smoothly and like you know getting a whole game to execute perfectly for the players so hats off to people that work in these studios i hear they're not easy places to work at no it's long hours yeah yeah. well i think think that's it for yep, this week it. right well we're gonna wrap this up uh thank you Mihir, for coming telling us all about video games Thanks for having me uh hopefully later this week there will be a supplemental episode going up on our youtube channel now that i've said that i have to do it we should just record us playing rocket league together yeah i think that's a great example right <laughs> there but that's what we have for this week and we'll see you guys next week for uh another two topics see ya This was Two Top, the independently created and run podcast created by Thomas Lance and Matt Berg and produced by Thomas Lance. Two Top is currently a non-funded project recorded weekly. For general inquiries or feedback, contact us at twotoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks and join us next week for another Two Topics.